Hello, listeners. Hope you are having a wonderful week so far. I have a fun one for you this week. I interviewed content creator and recent cookbook author, Jeremy Shep. You may recognize him from his TikTok food page with over 2 million followers or his popular food blog, Sheck Eats. His first and newest cookbook, Sheck Eats, Cooking Smarter, Friendly Recipes with a Side of Science, drops today, October 31st. So, of course, we did a deep dive into the inspiration for the book. Plus, we got into the spirit of Halloween in a fun Smasher Pass game towards the end. So please make sure to listen and join me in welcoming Jeremy Sheck. Hi and welcome to the Living for Food pod. I'm glad I could see you. I haven't seen you in like a year. I don't know if you remember, but... (laughs) Yeah, it was the, um, the New World Foods. Was that? Yeah, was yeah. That to... It was your the dog food event, and then I think I ran, oh, I ran into you at the New York Times Food Festival too. Oh um, yeah, and I harassed you for a quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't quite harassing. It's nice to see you. Yeah. <laughs> you too. You too. I believe I interviewed. Actually, I know I interviewed you over the phone. This was a while ago, though. Back in. I want to say 2022, maybe in the spring or, or the summer, but I was looking back at that interview and you had mentioned your cookbook and how the deal had literally just been finalized when we were talking at that interview. And now you're officially coming out with it, which is super exciting. Or at least when this podcast comes out, it'll be out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been a long time in the making. I had the idea five years ago. And I've been actively working on it for two years. So, yeah. And a month from now is when it actually comes out. So That's crazy. Wow. Five years in the making. You must be, like, so excited to finally have it a tangible thing to look at and spin out into the world. Yeah. It's definitely, like, a lot of emotions. I'm excited to get it. And um, I'm actually supposed to get, like, the... 40 copies um that i get today so oh yay so you're gonna give that to kind of friends and family kind of thing yeah i love that uh yeah amazing so before we dive into the details of the book i want to talk about your background a little bit you i was actually reading through your introduction in the book and i like learned so much about your background. So I want to ask you questions about that. You attended a Spanish immersion immersion elementary school and then later on majored in two foreign languages in college. With this interest, what did food look like culturally for you growing up? Yeah, well, I was really lucky to go to uh, an immersion elementary school, as you mentioned. It was Mm -hmm. a public magnet school, so it was a lottery to get in, but other than regular taxes, like, it was completely free. And I had teachers, the most amazing teachers from uh, all over Latin America and some from Spain as well. And my first two teachers uh, were... Puerto Rican and Mexican 
and then I had a Salvadoran teacher and then another Mexican teacher. Those, those were in elementary school. Um, and then I had a lot of uh, teachers from Spain in middle, in middle school. But we would have, it was a very diverse elementary school and we had um, kind of multicultural nights where people would bring in food. We also did this thing in like second grade where my teacher kind of like put on a restaurant, like a Mexican restaurant in the classroom, which was really fun. And I just have such good memories of that. Like we pretended to be like the waiters and stuff and they brought in the food from a local place. And yeah, I think that like growing up with the two languages just made me inclined to look at recipes in Spanish as opposed to just like mm-hmm. recipes that would be easier to only access. Like if I was only looking at, at translations or in English. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And um, yeah. And then when I had the opportunity to add Italian, which is like 80, 82% similar, uh-huh. <laughs> it was just, it was really fun and it wasn't that, uh, difficult to to kind of add on. I'm so jealous of that. I wish I was fully fluent and especially Italian because I was living there for a little bit and I just I was learning it and then the minute I came back it just I lost it again but it's gonna be my goal. To it's learn. really such a gift like I like from my parents like I'm like you can't even put a price on on the gift like also my it's kind of funny my older brother was on Mm -hmm. the wait list for the school and he went to regular kindergarten for a month and he made all his friends like kindergarten and then a month into school he got off the wait list and my mom pulled him out and put him in the spanish school and then once we had one brother in all of us got to go oh that's amazing i'm if i ever have kids in the future i'm making them do that It's definitely worth looking into. Yeah, for sure. In um, the cookbook and in our past interview, I was reading, you mentioned your grandmother. Would you say she was an inspiration for you in terms of your cooking skills and and now newfound success? Yeah, I I always enjoyed cooking with her. I still enjoy cooking with her. And she was kind of like the original recipe tester in my family. Like she has binders and binders full of recipes. Oh, wow. That she, and she's also the type of cook that like measures the salt. Like I do that if I'm writing a recipe, but not like typically. Right. Uh, And so she's really specific with it. And uh, this is something I haven't told anyone, but I have an idea for a second book that has to do more specifically with her recipes and like thinking about how they hold up in 2023 uh, and like the generational stuff. So uh, yeah, I haven't told anyone that, but yeah. And it was really fun. I actually got to collaborate with both my grandmas for this book. Mm-hmm. So my dad's mom is the one that's more of the recipe tester. And so she has a couple of recipes and mentions throughout the book, like her twice baked potatoes and this um, lemon pepper broccoli that she would make for my grandpa. But my other grandma, who's also a really good cook, but it's not, it wasn't as much her thing. Mm -hmm. 
she illustrated the book. I saw that. I saw a little comment. I thought that was the cutest thing ever. Yeah, she's an amazing artist and she painted watercolor. I have um, them right here, but these are the her they're original. Incredible. Yeah, they they're really cute. They make it so unique. Thank you. And I made them into stickers also. Oh, that's adorable. Are you going to sell those or do they come with the book? Um, I think I'm going to like figure out how to give them out at events and stuff. I don't know that I'm going to sell them, but. Okay. Yeah. Maybe at like your book tour. Yeah. Or something. yeah. That'd be super cute. In terms of the languages that we were speaking about before, have you found that that helps you experiencing different cuisines and cooking in the kitchen? For sure. I mean, I feel like when I'm able to look at something in the original language, I'm able to understand it a lot more. And so mm-hmm. I always think it's like a little ironic. Like my favorite cuisines are like Thai, Japanese, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, there's a million Chinese cuisines, but like I've never had one that I didn't like. However, I'm just never going to be able to do the firsthand like primary source research in those languages. And so to me, it's like, okay, that's a fun thing for me to experience and for me to, to like go to restaurants and I don't have to like know about it completely. And like, but uh, since I'm able to do research in Italian and in Spanish and I end up, I also absolutely love those because the related like Latin American, Spanish, Italian cuisines as well, but it's just like top five, they're pretty much all going to be Asian cuisines. And I definitely like cook with different influences from all over the world. Like I'm not limited to the Spanish and Italian, um, right. but I just, like, uh, there's this amazing YouTube channel called Italia Squisita, and it's, like, all sort of, sometimes it's, like, about a specific chef, sometimes it's a story, and it's really well made, and they'll make information about, like, um, they did, like, a video of, like, the original Alfredo, like, uh, like fettuccine alfredo and like there's so many misconceptions about it but they're like they're at the restaurant interviewing the person who invented it and so it's like yeah i think it's really cool and it's like a lot of the italian chefs and there's also i used to uh always watch this uh mexican youtuber i want to say it was called cocina para todos okay uh the woman's name was janet and her videos were so good, and I, I think she still makes them. Yeah. Okay, I'll check her out. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I know the fettuccine Alfredo, I, I learned when I was over in Europe that um, it, it doesn't, it's not really authentically Italian, I guess you could say. Neither is chicken parm. One of my Italian teachers had no idea what chicken parmesan was yeah. <laughs> until I told her. <laughs> no, the chicken parm is like crazy to them. The fettuccine Alfredo is like a little more nuanced because it was invented in Rome, but it's not like a national dish. Like it was invented at one right. restaurant. So it's kind of like just because one restaurant made it does not really make it a a thing. And also people get confused because it's like at the end of the day, it's like pasta in bianco or pasta al burro parmigiano, like pasta right. with butter and parm and so 
Uh, it's a little bit more of a fancier version of that, but that's usually something that they think of as like a when you're sick type of like home recipe, not something you would get at a restaurant. And in fact, the 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 uh, inventor says he made it for his like pregnant wife who was experiencing like morning sickness. Oh really? Oh wow, that's so interesting. I didn't know that. No yeah. one's ever given me that background before. I think when I was in Rome, I ordered cacio e pepe on repeat and then carbonara. And then that was it. Just alternating. <laughs> Those are so good. They're so good. You kickstarted your passion for food, though, through your culinary blog in high school. And then you worked at a bakery, right? Yeah. Okay. So how did you go from doing those things to teaching cooking classes at Williams-Sonoma? I think that's so interesting. Uh, Yeah, it was a little bit of like a circuitous journey, but I, so sophomore in high school is when I really got into, I I got a job at a bakery. I was like watching YouTube videos and reading cookbooks cover to cover, like practicing every day. I did that like for years, but starting then. And then Mm. at some point during high school, I asked my local Williams-Sonoma or something. I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I um, I got the opportunity to do like a cooking, a couple cooking tutorials, like demos. Uh, I did cake decorating okay. demos. Um, I, I think I made cupcakes in one of them, but I was under 18. Mm-hmm. I was not an employee. And, um, you know, it, it was a fun experience. And they kind of always said, okay, like when you turn 18, come get a job. And so... Uh-huh. Then I did that, the, I guess it started like winter break of, after my freshman year of college is, I guess is when it started. And then I did it like a whole summer and then another winter break. And basically I was a regular like sales associate, um, but they also had me cook the, uh, teach the cooking classes. So they had like a cooking class once a week um on the weekends maybe they had more but i did one like once a week they would give me the recipe like the day before and sometimes it was something that i hadn't made before and so i would have to like go home and practice and like teach it to myself before i taught it and it was honestly such a great way to learn like i was probably a little in over my head but i do think that after like going home and practicing, I was able, like, they always went well. um, And I also Mm -hmm. felt like people usually walked away with some good tips. Because a lot of, like, I kind of feel like whenever I'm teaching a cooking class, if if they are beginners, there are a lot of things that are going to be universal no matter what the recipe is. So even if it's not, like a recipe that, you know, I'm not making fried chicken all the time. And like, that was definitely one of the ones that I like had to like go at home and like make, um, <laughs> but there's still kind of like the essential things about seasoning or getting the temperature right on the oil mm-hmm. and salting it after it comes out of it. Like things that kind of would be important regardless and are just like culinary literacy that, I think people enjoyed all those tips um, and that yeah. I didn't necessarily need to, to be like a fried chicken expert to impart those tips. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that helped you learn as well when you were 
doing them kind of on the fly. I feel like that would be a little stressful for me if I was learning how to make a full fried chicken dish the night before. (laughs) I have to teach it. But I didn't even know that Williams-Sonoma did cooking classes. Maybe that's just universal knowledge, but I I didn't know that. It might depend on the location. Okay. What you should do, have you gone back and taught a class now that you've had all your TikTok success and stuff? So I haven't taught a class yet since then, but they are playing a major role in my book tour. So I'm going to at least five locations. I'm teaching a class at their HQ. I'm doing a lot with them and I've been in, they've been so great. They're hosting uh, like my launch party, um, which I will definitely need to send you the details for if you happen to be in New York, but yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I would love to go. I, um, that's so great that it, it comes full circle. Yeah. No, I, must feel so- it's really nice. And I think like they like that too. Um, and <laughs> so it's very like, I think it's a nice like partnership because it, they really go hand in hand with everything that I want to do. Like, and um, for them, I think I'm kind of, it's, a, it's like a very like wholesome, like I work, uh, you know, I went when I was in high school and then I came back as an employee and now it's like, so it's very, yeah, very full circle, as you said. You're the Williams-Sonoma success story. I'm sure they're, <laughs> they're happy about it. When during that time did you have the idea for your cookbook? When did that kind of blossom? So I had the idea my freshman year of uh, high school and no, sorry college uh so mm-hmm. five years ago I had the Probably idea yeah <laughs> basically I was in the dorms freshman year and not cooking a ton and I was getting ready to move into my first apartment mm-hmm. and planning that and I was thinking like okay what are all the cookware what's all the cookware I need what are the ingredients I'm gonna have I'm gonna have a really small budget for the, all of this like just all of the above. And so I had the idea for easy recipes that would use staple ingredients, really the concept of the book. I probably was going to tailor it a little more to the college kitchen. Like I had an idea to maybe do it um, in chronological order with like the season starting like with the school year. Okay. But I had the opportunity to like basically explain my idea to a cookbook author and in the nicest way possible, she said, it, like, it's a great idea, but it's really, really hard to get published. You're not going to make money on it. And it's probably worth just like working on your social media. And she was absolutely right at the time because I didn't have any significant social media. I had maybe a couple hundred followers on my Instagram. And so, okay, so she means in terms of you were kind of unknown at that time. Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, I was a really a random college student. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I just decided to change my blog in high school was more focused on baking. I decided to make it more focused to the college kitchen, whether that was only baking or, I mean, it had a little bit of baking if it was easy. My rule was like only like one bowl, no mixer baking. In the cookbook, mm-hmm. it's all no mixer. The bowls are minimal. I don't. I don't know that I like specifically did one bowl, but mm-hmm. yeah. 
And I like too that your your cookbook focuses on the side of science. I think that's really interesting because learning everything behind it can really help you conceptualize the dish as you're making it and then help you understand too in terms of experimenting and and doing kind of what you want. And then you were kind of able to transfer your explanation powers or whatever you know the term is for lack of a better term <laughs> into content creation so when you talk to that cookbook author is that when you kind of started posting the videos it happened a little later so like i probably i spent maybe about nine months working on the new blog and then okay. covid hit and that's when i started making videos i was using tiktok as like a casual user and I saw some people's cooking videos and kind of thought, huh, maybe I could do that. And then once COVID mm. hit and we were sent home my sophomore year, I started making videos like cleaning out the kitchen because uh, my dad was like going to pick me up and we didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Um, and that's when I really started. Okay. I feel like if someone told me that it was impossible to get published, that would just like fuel my fire and I would be like, now nah, I'm going to get published. Yeah, it's yeah, I don't know that I am exactly that way, but it was more just like I, if you had asked me even before that, what's your dream job? It, I would have said, well, I would mm -hmm. love to just like write cookbooks and kind of do like something like Ina Garten. But I also yeah. kind of assumed that I would need some sort of spouse to finance that. Um, so um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know that I took it as a huge surprise how difficult it would be to be published. Yeah. And, yeah, I don't think, like, I necessarily, like, it fueled my fire out of spite. But I think it just redirected my energy in a more productive place. Because if I had been, like, only worried about the book at the time before I was really ready for it, then I don't think I would have gone mm. anywhere. Yeah, that's a great way of wording it. That definitely makes sense. You mentioned Ina Garten, and I, in the cookbook as well, you mentioned um, her Barefoot Contessa cookbooks as one of your go-tos. She's not really a professionally trained chef, and she's completely self-taught, and that kind of aligns with your thought process as well, I would think. What cookbooks or other food personalities kind of ignited your inspiration and interest for food, if any. Yeah. I, see, I like a combination of the um, self-taught cooks that are more like me and the professionals. Um, so I love Ina Garten and Melissa Clark. I mean, I know Melissa Clark is a home cook and recipe tester. I'm, I actually am not sure what her professional background is in in cooking um but but i know she's like not working in restaurants like right now but then i also love people like samin nasrat who was like a really intense like working in fancy restaurants at chez panisse and like and i love her series salt fat acid heat in her book um because i think it really combines like the food the science, the cooking, and, like, the wonder that I try to capture. So the three of them also, um, I really absolutely love Padma Lakshmi's show, Taste oh, the Nation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. They all really kind of capture different parts of what I hope to one day be able to emulate. 
Did you meet Padma at the festival? Did you get to meet her or see her speak? I saw her speak, but I have yeah. not had the pleasure of, of really meeting her in person. You should extend an invitation to your launch party, see if she comes. Yeah, I should. You never know. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> So diving a little bit deeper into your cookbook, something that I found really interesting in your prologue is that you said you'd never, ever call yourself a chef, but a home cook. And then you mentioned that you'll never be like Dominique Crenn or Thomas Keller, but why not? You know? Yeah. I So I was thinking about that a lot because I was on like a work trip recently with a bunch of other food creators and most of them, one is a chef, like owns a restaurant one of them like was a line cook and like I I mean I did work in the professional bakery but it wasn't anything super fancy I think there's a few things I don't aspire to that like I my what I'm interested in is making recipes that are that are delicious and accessible to home cooks and so to me like the professional kitchen doesn't really figure into that. I had a really amazing time on this trip. We took a cooking class at the Ritz in Paris and it was like a really like fancy, oh, wow. like haute cuisine, like class. And, you know, we, what we made was delicious, but there were, so there were mm-hmm. three carrots of like the, the red carrot, the, the, the purple carrots, the orange carrots and the white carrots. And we used three separate pans for okay. each one. And like, uh, because God forbid the color bleeds in or something like that. And like, I just like, it's really (laughs) such an art and it was so much fun and it was delicious. And at the same time, it's so antithetical to like how I cook because the only thing I could Mm -hmm. think of the whole time is like, these dishes are going to be horrible. Like, um, That was a good thought too. I hate ambitious. Yeah. And so I think that it's not necessarily like being a professional chef doesn't necessarily mean you're a professional teacher. And being a professional chef could mean that you're like an like someone like Simi Nostrat. She's like she has it all. She's a professional chef. She's an amazing communicator, like all of those things. But just because you uh, like have those chops doesn't necessarily mean you can communicate them or teach them and I'm more worried about the communication and also like I feel like as a home cook I am in tune with like what might be difficult for another home cook and like yeah kind of relate yeah okay yeah I like that I I think that's a, a good distinction too what popped out at me is so I just came off of a trip um, with like a lot of other media and, and stuff, and it was in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was learning so much about dairy farming and cheese production. So I thought it was so interesting that you met. I was reading that through your book, and I was like, "Oh, that's such good timing," because I was just learning all about that when I came off my press trip, and they have re generative agriculture which was interesting me and how they handle their produce and you visited Italy and you were able to kind of compare the dairy farming there to American farming practices but I would love to get your opinion on how you think we can kind of improve the farming system here 
that's a that's like a big political question. It's a heavy loaded yeah. question. <laughs> so I don't know exactly how to answer it. Um, I think that to me, the most important thing is if you have the time, energy, and money to get to know the people who are producing your food. So if you're able to go to the farmer's market and meet the people who are producing the dairy and um, maybe you have the opportunity to visit a farm, I think that being more involved in the food system is always good. It's really easy to be like super, super separated. Like you go to the grocery store and the carton of milk kind of doesn't feel like it has anything to do with like the soil and the uh, people who are milking the cows and taking care of them and stuff like that. But I don't know. It's definitely a loaded question because I think most people don't have the time or energy or interest or money to worry about that. Yeah, yeah, no. I knew that was a loaded question going in, but <laughs> I wanted some of your opinion because it is separated. It, we become desensitized to when we go into the grocery store, who's actually behind everything that we see on the shelves. So when I was talking to all of these farmers, it was just so interesting to me and made me realize that I need to go to farmer's markets more. I love, I love a farmer's market. It's like my happy place. No, me too. I was literally smiling ear to ear, like walking just around. People probably thought I was a little nutty, but I was just so happy. <laughs> just eating everything and walking around. I, I was learning from your book too, because you have a is cheese vegetarian section. And it's such a nuanced subject that I didn't really think about, but you explained it really perfectly. Thank you. Yeah, I think people... Well, it's really confusing, I think, because at the end of the day, not everyone's going to agree. And the topic of animal run it is just sort of nuanced. Like, is, I mean, you could, you could also get into the discussion of like, is leather vegetarian? Like, what is, what does vegetarian mean? Does vegetarian mean that you're eating, that you're just not eating meat? Or are you taking it kind of a step further and more in the same vein of vegan, where it's more describing a whole ethical lifestyle uh, that income? Right. So I'm more inclined to interpret the word vegetarian as strictly dietary. And then even, but even if you're talking about just the diet, like, are you just talking about meat? Eggs are vegetarian in Western cultures. I know in India, they don't always consider that vegetarian. Dairy is vegetarian. Mm -hmm. Those are animal products. So why are like the enzymes in rennet not vegetarian? It's not meat. So it's just kind of interesting where we choose to draw the, draw the line. I totally think it makes sense if there's someone who is strictly vegetarian and says, I don't want to consume things that, are, that use animal rennet, but I will eat other mm -hmm. cheeses. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really philosophical and it comes down to how you define a lot of different things. Yeah, I, I think either side kind of makes sense. It's just going to be dependent on the beliefs of, of the person as well. Let's go a little more general into recipes. What's your go-to everyday without fail recipe to make right now? 
Oh, um, I've been traveling so much and not cooking a ton, but I mm. have been making just a plain omelet with Gruyere Ooh, a lot, okay. and it's just the perfect cheese for an omelet. Like, it's so nutty and melts into it. And What's your favorite cheese? I've been talking about cheese a lot this week because I literally went to a cheese festival this weekend, so... <laughs> Oh, I can't decide. Um, I that's that is a loaded question. Talk about loaded questions. Um, <laughs> the most controversial one I'll ask you. <laughs> well, um, mine is brie. Triple churn brie is my favorite. Okay, I can I right can now. tell you, not my favorite. Actually, one that I've really been liking is um, oh, what's it called? What's it called? Uh, mimolette. Ooh, is that a softer cheese or is it's it? A, it's like a really hard orange cheese. Oh, love. There's one that I really want to try. It's called, I actually think I have the explanation. I have it somewhere over here, but it's called like Rush Creek. And I guess it's something that they only produce in fall and it's only available between like two or three months. And I want to say, I might get this wrong, actually. I'm just not going to explain okay. it because I might get it wrong. But it's it's a softer cheese and it looks so good. But yeah, my life has been very cheesy lately. Me so too. <laughs> Is there a recipe that maybe didn't make the cut in your, your cookbook that you may have wanted to or are saving for future? Well, yes, in a lot of ways, because this book had a very specific scope and there were a lot of recipes that just Mm -hmm. did not fit into the scope which actually made it a lot easier to choose so these recipes all had to have like a limited number of of non-staple ingredients so if there were like 10 different things that did not go along with any other recipe that just wouldn't be in it okay or and just like the level of difficulty so like um i didn't add challah or pie dough because I, I think that those are um, more advanced recipes and it was just not really in the scope of this book. Okay. Yeah, pie dough is a little more I guess it's a little bit harder. I've never honestly made it myself so I can't <laughs> comment on it too much but with the, mo- the book being mostly about science, is there a food fact that you think maybe most people don't know that you want them to? Uh, yeah, so I have a little section on why I prefer not to buy uh, bottled citrus juice. And basically, like when citrus juice is pasteurized, it loses all of its flavor. And then the companies add in what are called flavor packs, and they're made from the same factories and companies that make like Dior fragrances. And they um, add back in the flavor. And then they also don't need to uh, label them as like additional ingredients if it's like derived loosely from the citrus. But it could be totally and completely engineered. So the the exception Mm -hmm. to that would be like cold pressed citrus juices Mm -hmm. that are bottled because that's not pasteurized. However, that is like so expensive and you might as well just press it yourself if you're able to. I don't feel like I normally use citrus juice. I try to just use regular lemons and limes and 
um, things like that, but I'll, I'll avoid it now that you, <laughs> you're giving me a lot of tips. <laughs> What's funny too, is I just learned that there's a difference between taste and flavor. And then you said that in your book too, but it's not something that anyone, not anyone, but most people really consider because you kind of intertwine the two. Would you be able to explain the difference for those listening? Yeah. So taste is really limited in scope. It's just the five things that our taste buds can perceive. So that's sweet, salty, um, sour, bitter, and umami. So if you lost your sense of smell, those are the only things that you could perceive. So the thing that's confusing is that when we talk about smell, olfaction, it's like the scientific term for smell, um, we're not necessarily talking about orthonasal olfaction, which is like smelling in front of you. Uh, Like you're not, it's not just that. Most of the smell in in flavor comes from retronasal olfaction. So that's actually like the gases inside of your mouth while you're eating going up into your nose, uh, the back way. So um, flavor is the combination of tastes with smells, whereas taste is just okay. uh, the five. So you can't perceive kind of like the differences between maybe two similar fruits if you are holding your nose. Well, you probably can if you're holding your nose. Still, but like, if you don't have a sense of smell, um, whereas uh, you might just be able to uh, taste it sweet or sour. You are great at explaining things. I try. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you are. So let's talk about what's next for you. The cookbook comes out on October 31st. What are you up to in the meantime? Um, a lot of planning for that. Um, so there's been a lot of uh, planning for the tour and just everything related to the launch has been really occupying me. And as I hinted at before, like I do have an idea for another book and, you know, this is my job. And so I definitely like have to stay on top of that. And I'm considering spending some time abroad next year so um yeah just like a lot of things in the works and trying to get like a lot of irons in the fire I love that of course the grind never stops you're thinking about another cookbook while your other one's not even out yet (laughs) yeah where are you thinking about going abroad is that to live or just for a few months I am considering uh spain and italy spain would be a little easier with the visa possibilities but we'll see i just think that i would love to be in a different space if i am writing another book and might be a fun way to kind of practice my spanish and experience different things i didn't get to study abroad because of covid so yeah I feel that I was sent home uh, when I was studying abroad because of mid, like mid abroad studying. <laughs> so I feel that, but I do have a suggestion for a place for you to go. If you do end up going to Italy, go to Luca. Have you been to there before? No, I have not. Oh, it is 
I every I've been there a few times and every time I've gone I just think this is the best place for writing I've been because it is so small but they have really exquisite cuisine they have not a ton of people it's a very small area but there's one specific area that you can kind of go into and it is just so peaceful and the weather is so nice obviously not in like midsummer but (laughs) it is really calming so if you get the chance go there and it's really good to clear your mind i would love to yeah whether i pick spain or italy it will be easier to go um from there than from new york yeah (laughs) yeah 30 dollar flight from spain to italy is not bad compared to like a thousand dollar one here (laughs) exactly yeah all right so i have a short game for you if you're up for it i basically will say five foods or trends and then you'll tell me if it's a smash or pass okay Okay, but I'm doing a fun twist this episode because it's dropping on Halloween. So I thought I would be Halloween themed. Okay, sounds good. Okay. First one, candy corn. Pass. Agreed. Second one, this is kind of more of a question, but sweet or savory Halloween appetizers? I would say in general, savory, but for Halloween, sweet. Okay. Agreed. Number three, roasted pumpkin seeds. I never got on that train, but. I'll say smash. I have good memories of doing that in the toaster with my mom. Oh, cute. Yeah, my dad would always do it too. So I think that's where the nostalgia kicks in. Number four, a caramel apple board. Have you seen that? I haven't, but I can imagine it. I think I would Mm -hmm. like that. You know, I'll, I'll say smash smash number five pumpkin pie martini pass agreed number six popcorn balls this is very nostalgic too oh smash i love anything popcorn me too and now my final question is what's your favorite halloween candy Ooh, um i feel like my favorite generic halloween candy is probably a kit kat Mm. do you eat it like kind of like a sandwich like I always kind of eat the chocolate first and then eat the middle or I'm kind of a monster I, I bite into it I don't even separate though treason I know I know <laughs> that is very controversial you're gonna get comments on that <laughs> I know I know I mean we shouldn't have admitted it <laughs> okay actually I lied before this is now my final question okay. for you and this is something I asked every single guest if there is one cooking appliance or utensil that you think everyone should splurge on what would it be and why is the key word splurge yeah okay if the key word let me look into my kitchen um if the key word is splurge actually i would say an immersion blender it's not even a major splurge like i think you can get one for like 30 dollars but the you can make like the best vinaigrettes with it you emulsify so much you can make mayo and um pestos and a lot of times it's like just more convenient than a stand-up blender because you can use whatever container you want 
Um, especially it works great with a deli container. Um, so I, yeah, I've been really pro immersion blender. What's the difference between a regular blender and an immersion blender? An immersion blender is just like the stick blenders. Um, so they're like handheld and it's basically just like a stick that has the, the blades at the bottom. So you can do it like directly in a pot or, um, or in a container instead of like a blender that is like the whole pitcher. Ah, I need one of those. They're really great. Yeah. That's so smart. I have one blender here, but it pisses me off. So I stopped using it. I was using it for smoothies and then they sent me a magic bullet. So now I'm using that. Those are great too. Yeah. I've loved those. I'm sure you can use those for a pesto too, but. Oh, for sure. um, Yeah. I'm sure it's easier to use an immersion blender. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was super fun and I'm glad to see you again. It was fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is really, yeah, really fun. Of course. So Jeremy's cookbook is now available on Amazon. You can also follow Jeremy on Instagram or TikTok at Sheck Eats. And he'll be doing a book tour throughout the next few months. So make sure to put that on your calendars as well. Do you have to get tickets for it or? I believe so. Uh, In the link in my bio, you should be able to find all the information about it. So the Williams-Sonoma ones have a specific uh, a link for all of those tickets and then there are also separate events at like specific bookstores that kind of have their own system hey fellow foodies thanks for listening don't forget to leave me a review and while you're at it make sure to follow me at living for food pod on instagram or tiktok or email me at living for food pod at gmail.com let me know what you're cooking up this week which guests you would like to see on the podcast, or tell me your opinions on the latest viral food trend. Until next time.